Hello, and welcome to Bold Conversations, a five-part series on the Immune Deficiency Foundation podcast aimed at advancing knowledge and understanding of health equity. Welcome to this second episode of Bold Conversations. I am your host, Dr. Nicole Rochester, IDF's Medical Advisor for Health Equity, and I am really excited and thrilled and honored to have Dr. Sharita Golden join me today for a conversation about the roots of medical mistrust in communities of color. Um, so thank you for being here, Dr. Golden. I'm going to start by reading her bio, just a very brief portion of Dr. Golden's bio. She has numerous accomplishments, but I want to give you a snapshot of what you are in store for. So Dr. Sharita Hill-Golden is the Hugh P. McCormick Family Professor of Endocrinology and Metabolism and Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer for Johns Hopkins Medicine. Dr. Golden is an internationally recognized physician scientist and member of the National Academy of Medicine, the Association of American Physicians and the American Society of Clinical Investigation. She is the author of more than 200 articles focused on diabetes, endocrinology, and health disparities. In her current role as Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer for Johns Hopkins Medicine, Dr. Golden oversees diversity, inclusion, and health equity strategy and operations for the School of Medicine and Johns Hopkins Health System. Dr. Golden graduated Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude from the University of Maryland College Park and Alpha Omega Alpha from the University of Virginia School of Medicine before training in internal medicine and endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. During her endocrinology fellowship, she received a Master of Health Science degree in clinical epidemiology from the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Golden, like myself, is a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated where she serves as the co-chair for the Physical and Mental Health Committee of the Baltimore County Alumni Chapter. Dr. Golden and her husband are the proud parents of son Andrew, who is a sports journalist for the Washington Post. And I could go on and on and on, but I will stop there and welcome you, Dr. Golden. Thank you for being our guest on Bold Conversations. Well, thank you, Dr. Rochester, for, for having me. And um, I admire the work that you do. So I'm very grateful to be one of your um, your guests. Well, we appreciate you being here. When we started talking about the topics and we landed on medical mistrust, and I knew that I wanted to have you as a guest, so I appreciate you saying yes. So let's get started. I, I think I want to set the stage by just talking about medical mistrust and, and specifically why it's a problem in communities of color. And it's interesting because just today, um, an article was released by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where they talked about an initiative that is launching among eight healthcare systems around this very topic, around rebuilding trust. And some of the information that they shared in their article really kind of helps to illuminate the problem. And what they stated is that the percentage of the public who say that they have either a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the medical system has dropped from 80% in 1975 to 37% in 2015. 
And um, while American, all American institutions have seen declines in trust, but unfortunately, healthcare has seen the biggest decline. And certainly, you and I know that that mistrust is amplified in communities of color. And we're going to talk more about why. Uh, so there was an October 2020 study conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which found that seven out of 10 African Americans believe that people are treated unfairly based on race or ethnicity when they seek medical care. So uh, we know that medical mistrust runs deep and that as a result of this mistrust, it further exacerbates some of the disparities that we see uh, among communities of color. So I wanted to really start the conversation by asking you about your professional experience as a medical doctor in the community what have you seen among patients from minoritized racial and ethnic groups as it relates to mistrust in the healthcare system? Um, well, this is such a, a critical topic and just your framing with the statistics really make you say, wow, as you think about it. And, you know, I'm an endocrinologist. Um, so I have spent my career taking care of patients with diabetes primarily. So um, because of the populations that diabetes impacts, it's primarily predominantly a minoritized community. And so the experiences I had um, when I was practicing endocrinology was really convincing patients to start to, to really try new treatments. So for example, you know, when new therapies came on the market and they had risk factors that suggested that perhaps one of these newer therapies would be more beneficial for their glycemic control, as well as their cardiovascular health, that there would often be reluctance. Um, now, I believe that because um, if being a physician of color gave me an advantage, because, you know, I could reassure them, well, what are the questions that you have? I've read the background, and this is why I believe this will be beneficial for you. I was almost always able to um, get those patients onto the therapy that was going to be most appropriate for them. But there was often pause initially when we brought up a new therapy. Um, so that was in the context of diabetes. And I would say that um, what I saw during the time of the COVID vaccines really shed a lot of light on that. So in the Black community, there was, of course, a lot of um, concern about whether or not they should take the vaccine because it was um, produced so quickly. And, uh, you know, and then there were also concerns about, well, is it going to change my DNA? And there were just very interesting things I heard. Um, you know, the, the most frequent one was I heard that there's a tracking device in the vaccine that's, you know, going to be tracking me so the government can find me. And my joke when I was doing community education seminars about it was, well, if you really don't want to be tracked, then you should actually get rid of your cell phone because that is how they can track you today. But and that would often make people say, oh, OK, you know, and, and we could break the ice that way. But um, but, you know, there were valid reasons for those concerns, and I think it's important to address that. Um, and then when we thought about the Latino community, their concern was not so much the treatment within the medical system, but whether or not if I go to the hospital, are they going to turn me into ICE if I'm undocumented? So their concerns were around the government as a whole, and because parts of healthcare are a part of you know, the, um, or, or interact with um, government agencies, their concern was more, I'm concerned that if I go to the hospital, then my family is going to be separated. So these were the different um, scenarios that we had to navigate during COVID um, that really 
brought all of that home in a very clear light. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I feel like COVID just like yanked the lid off mm -hmm. of this issue. And, and like you, being a physician of color, I have found myself able to usually navigate some of that mm -hmm. mistrust among patients and families of color. But COVID, mm -hmm. it's like all of my doctor credibility <laughs> right out of the window. And right. you know, I found that even... I had to spend a lot more time um, talking with, you know, patients, but even in family members, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, there were COVID did a lot to really help us to um, see the ills within the healthcare system. And as horrible as it was, I'm grateful that it has served as an impetus for, uh, for efforts moving forward. So what about yeah. personal experiences? Because, uh -huh. you know, I would imagine I have a few myself, but I want to hear mm -hmm. from you first. But, you know, as someone who is Black, um, you likely have, on a personal note, experienced some mistrust, maybe from family members or friends. Um, so uh -huh. I'd love for you to share if you have any examples of that. Uh, d definitely. So, you know, I, for most of my career, I have been a clinical researcher. So basically, that means that I do human subjects research, um, collecting samples from people, doing interventions on people. So my parents and my family, they're very proud of the work that I do. They also understand that, you know, if I get a grant from the NIH that says I need to enroll people in a study and carry out a protocol, that I need to do that so that I can publish the papers and get more grants funded. So here's the funny part though. When I have gone with my parents, taken them to medical appointments where I work at Johns Hopkins and they were like, would you like to enroll in this study? All we're gonna do is have you fill out some questionnaires and draw some blood. I mean, they were like, oh no, mm -mm, no, we're not, we're not participating in the research because we don't want you to inject us with anything. I'm like, no, first of all, it's my own institution. Like I'm here with you, they're not gonna inject you. They just wanna take your blood and store it and measure some analytes. So I mean, like there was one thing my mom's like I am not signing that consent form I just came here to get my eyes checked so <laughs> you know even though they understand the importance of clinical research that was my livelihood you know if if you are to call my parents right now and say I want to do a phone survey they will likely not participate and you know just for context you know they're 87 they were born in 1935 so they have seen a lot and I think that my journey as a scientist has helped them, but it still can't completely erase um, all of the concerns that that they have. So for me, that has just been fascinating. You know, um, they, they understand, again, this is a part of some people's livelihood. And, and basically, if we are not studied, then they will never learn what works in our communities. Yeah. But there's still that hesitation. So, wow. Um, that's been very interesting. That that is such a wonderful example, and this this dichotomy that even with all of your work and all of your mm -hmm. publications, and them knowing and being familiar with clinical trials and and how mm -hmm. your your involvement in research, and yet still to your point that that doesn't overcome those no. barriers and that historical mistrust. Yeah. I going back to COVID. I mean, you know, as as the only doctor in my family, I have enjoyed mostly the privilege of being the go-to person for my family members, you know, whether it was my parents when they were alive, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, people call me up and, and they uh -huh. want me to weigh in. They want me to validate 
what their doctor told them um, mm -hmm. or something they read on the internet. But when it came to COVID, I found myself having very difficult conversations with my mm -hmm. family members. And I'll never forget, you know, I actually, we did a family meeting on Zoom and I went through all the information and explained to them, this is like right before the vaccines were going to be mm -hmm. publicly available. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, Dr. Golden, I'm telling you, this presentation was pristine. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> I thought when I finished, everybody was going to have their hands up. Uh -huh. And there were people in my family very close to me who initially were, a, I mean, a no, like a capital N-O. Uh -huh. and, uh -huh. um, and, and it was very um, disheartening, but also, you know, it was, it was, it enlightened me to the fact that while I am viewed as a trustworthy person, uh -huh. Your point, like there was, there were all of these personal experiences around the medical, the healthcare system and the, the fear about how the vaccine was developed and all of those things you've already talked about. Yes. But for me, I'm like, wow, guys, like, you know me, you know? And right, right. I was, I was unable to overcome that fear. And honestly, to this point, there are still a couple of members who will remain unnamed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Still, there are still a couple of members in my family who uh -huh. just, they, they, they refuse. Uh -huh. um, you, you mentioned, you know, going back to your parents and talking about them being born in the thirties and, uh -huh. and um, they're this kind of historical mistrust and them being aware. I want to, I want to talk about that because we know that the mistrust in communities of color is well-earned. You know, these uh -huh. are not simply uh -huh. conspiracy theories. These are not, individuals who are not intelligent. These are, yes. um, there are historical and contemporary examples of why people of color mistrust the healthcare system. And if we uh -huh. just mention a few, you know, we have the um, Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis, which I always point out was funded uh -huh. by the United States Public Health Service. Yes, it was. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, was literally designed to study what happens to men when they don't get treatment for syphilis. And these were black men who weren't even told that they had syphilis, who uh, were really barred from receiving care. And there were efforts, they went at length to uh, talk with the healthcare providers in the area to say like, don't provide care. And uh -huh. even when a cure, even when penicillin was known to be a cure, this study went on and on and on for 40 years. Yes, it you know, did deaths and, and deaths of spouses and children born with syphilis and all types uh -huh. of unnecessary uh, consequences. And then, you know, we know that there was a whole eugenics movement with forced sterilization. Um, in the South, they called these Mississippi appendectomies where black women who went into uh -huh. the hospital for maybe an abdominal complaint would leave without a uterus, uh, uh -huh. without having given consent. And even now, I mean, there are contemporary examples of, of women receiving hysterectomies without consent. And then to speak to Baltimore, you know, where, uh -huh. where you are currently, where I train, um, we know that the story of Henrietta Lacks is, is something that many Black Americans are familiar with, where uh -huh. her cells from her cervical cancer were, you know, taken without her consent and, and now literally like formed the foundation of uh -huh. clinical research. So with all of that, I'm curious as to whether you feel that these historical examples of really abuse of trust uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and abuse of, of Black bodies in medicine and in healthcare, has, is it your experience that that influences 
uh, or informs the mistrust that patients experience, particularly in the communities where where you uh -huh. work? Um, so I think the answer is is yes. And, you know, it's interesting because during COVID, um, I was listening to someone speaking about the trust issues, particularly around, um, you know, the vaccine and the recommendations before we had vaccines, even like how you isolate, do you mask, do you not mask? Everything was evolving so quickly um, that it was difficult for people to figure out, well, which set of guidelines am I listening to today? And I heard somebody reframe it and saying that the medical establishment has violated the trust of marginalized communities. And I like that because yes. it puts the onus on, it's not that we are distrustful, it's that our trust was violated. So it puts the onus back on the structures and the organizations, the policies that created that mistrust. And I think that framing is very important because that means that we, it is upon us to earn that trust back by reaching out to those communities in a way and, and, and building that bridge in a way that they feel comfortable. So that really is still an issue. I mean, with Henrietta Lacks and I, you know, um, that is a big issue in Baltimore still that her cervical cancer cells were taken to build a HeLa line that has been used to advance science, but without her consent um, and without um, reparation to her family. So yeah. that that is a real issue. Baltimoreans um, think about that a lot. And of course, her story is known nationally, you know, as well. Um, so that is still foundational. And, and thinking about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. So there's a couple of things about that that really strike me. So the first is that it was made public in 1972. Not very long ago. I was born in 1968. I was four years old when the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was finally uncovered and yes. how the men were denied treatment with syphilis. That was a curative treatment. And that became important, though, because a lot of the Black community was using the syphilis experiment. Um, they were saying, well, it was a syphilis experiment because the men were injected with syphilis. And so we, yeah. I had to like reframe the Tuskegee syphilis experiment to, to kind of correct the misperceptions. It's like they contracted syphilis naturally. They were denied treatment. That's so right. what we're trying to do with the COVID vaccine is not make sure that you are not denied treatment. So correcting that did help to shift from the trust perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but but these are real issues. And I will say that I did not learn about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment formally until I was doing my master's in health science in the School of Public Health in a research ethics course many years after I graduated from medical school. So I did not learn about it in my formal medical education. I did not either. All right. So this is very shocking. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that before the syphilis experiment, there was also the Guatemala syphilis experiment yes. where a similar thing was done, again, supported by the U.S. Public Health Service. So, you know, we have to really be mindful that um, while we should say, well, that those are things of the past. And now, yes, there's human research subjects protection and you have to give consent and all of those things. We have to understand that because we violated that trust and that trust violation started even back during the time of slavery, yes. that it's going to take that many hundreds of years to earn that trust back. Absolutely. And, you know, we have to also acknowledge that while we're talking about things that happened in the past, this continues. You know, there, there are does. still incidents of um, 
patient bias and discrimination and structural racism and interpersonal racism within the healthcare uh-huh. system. We know that in our country, um, black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related uh-huh. complications. And uh-huh. a large part of that is due to not listening, due to bias, discrimination. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, we know that there are still race algorithms, you know, race related algorithms in the healthcare system that literally prescribe worse care for patients of color. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, there are ongoing um, incidents that and activities that continue to widen the disparity gaps. And so you don't uh-huh. have to go back in the history books to, yes. to find evidence that would make you have some mistrust of the healthcare system. Yeah, I agree with that because that was one of the important points that I think many of us were trying to make who were involved in um, first educating our colleagues in medicine before we went out to the community is that for most people, they are not thinking about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or Henrietta Lacks. They're thinking about the last time they went to the physician's office. Yes. And how they were received and perceived and the assumptions that were made. Um, they're just thinking about what happened at that point in time. And, you know, and I remember having an experience when I was um, about 30, I was, I was a younger woman and I had had um, abdominal surgery and I wasn't feeling well. It was maybe about 10 days post-operatively and my husband was on call and my mom was with me and my doctor said, well, it's a Friday. So let's go to the, um, go to the emergency room. Just make sure you don't have a bowel obstruction. Because if it's not that, then we can work with anything else. But that would be an emergency. So my mom and I get in the car. We go over to the hospital that shall remain nameless. It's not my current institution, but but I'm not going to say. <laughs> and, you know, the nurse you know, took my information. I told her I'd had surgery recently, all those things. So I don't know whether the physician that came in did not read that or what happened. But I started telling him what I was experiencing. He literally pats me on the arm and says, well, you know, honey, there's this GI bug that's going around and it's making a lot of people feel kind of queasy and whatever. And he had not examined me and I could tell he was about to dismiss me. And I said, okay, stop. I said, because I don't tell people I'm a doctor when I go into the healthcare Neither do I. Right. So I said, stop. I said, I'm a, I was the endocrine fellow at the time. So I'd done a whole residency. I said, I'm a doctor at Johns Hopkins. If you read my chart, you'll see I had major surgery 10 days ago. And I need you to order me an abdominal x-ray and make sure I don't have a bowel obstruction. He was mortified. (laughs) And my mother was with me. And of course, she let him have it. You just made assumptions about her because she's just a young Black woman. I mean, but the point is, I had that experience as a physician in an emergency room in my own city where I take care of patients. So these are the kinds of things that people are remembering. They don't have to go back to Tuskegee. They might just be going back to last week or last month. So we need to be mindful of what we're doing today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for for sharing that, Dr. Golden. You know, it just reminds me of so many instances. Similarly, when I've gone to the doctor or when my dad was alive and I was helping to care for him and taking him to the doctor and this need to speak up, you know, and this Uh need to um, make sure that the doctors are not ignoring complaints. And and, and we're not saying that this doesn't happen to other people. We know that this Uh is not unique 
to communities of color. However, we know from personal professional experiences and from the data uh -huh. that this happens much more likely among communities of color. Uh -huh. um, I, I want to talk about racial concordance because this is something that I have found sometimes colleagues um, may struggle with, um, particularly colleagues who are not members of minoritized communities. This understanding and the evidence that shows that when black and brown patients um, see doctors who look like them, they actually have better outcomes. And, you know, I wish that that were not true. Uh -huh. um, but again, the, the data is is undeniable. And certainly um, some of the preliminary studies around this, which were all involving adult patients, linked that connection to things like improved communication, improved uh -huh. rapport, you know, sharing cultural values and things of that nature. And I'm sure you and I can both relate to having those experience with patients. But then uh -huh. there was a study that came out a few years ago where they looked at newborns who can't uh -huh. talk, can't communicate with their doctors and saw that in this particular study, the mortality rate for newborns was like in half for those newborns who were cared for by, uh, or black newborns, let me be specific, uh -huh. African-American or black newborns who were cared for by uh, black pediatricians, neonatologists. And, uh -huh. and so there's still more work that needs to be done and more studies to really uncover that. But I wanted to just get your thoughts about the the, the evidence about racial concordance uh -huh. and, and how that plays into medical mistrust, given that Black doctors only make up 5% of the population. I think Latino doctors, uh -huh. 4 to 5%, Native yeah. American or Indigenous doctors, like less than 2%. Yes. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so the data are undeniable. And, you know, one of my colleagues, Dr. Lisa Cooper, did some of the early, you know, seminal work in that area. And, you know, if we think about like the first example you gave around the racial concordance and the communication, you know, the studies show that um, when there's racial concordance between the um, the clinician and the patient, that there's uh, more participatory decision making on the part of the patient. There's less verbal dominance from the physician so that the patient is able, again, to engage um, in that dialogue. So those are things that are really um you know, real and, and evidence-based. And part of that also is likely related to perhaps that affinity connection that you have with someone that's from the same culture. So I remember the first time I experienced that, I was a um, third-year medical student um, at the University of Virginia, and I was doing my internal medicine rotation. And I had an African-American patient who was from a rural part of Virginia, just been diagnosed with um, diabetes. So he came in with a foot ulcer. It turned out he had undiagnosed diabetes, undiagnosed hypertension, undiagnosed hypercholesterolemia. So there was a lot of work that we had to do, but he was getting better. The ulcer was healing and he got all his diabetes education and everything. So we were on rounds the day before discharge. And he's like, well, can I continue to eat collard greens and chitlins? And like, I was the only black person on the team and everybody's looking confused. And I said, let me explain to so my colleague. I said, this is like a, a Southern black delicacy. And I said to him, no, you can't have those the way you used to eat them. The chitlins are no. And the, the collard greens now need to be with like olive oil and not ham hocks. And, you know, so he, we were yeah. having this whole dialogue and the team was like, what on earth are they talking about? <laughs> but the point is the fact that, you know, we could connect in that way um, from the, these are the meds you need, but then here's how you need to alter the lifestyle 
Like telling him you cannot have collard greens is not the right answer, but saying just prepare them in a different way is important. Yeah. You know, and I've had patients come to me who are Asian where some endocrinologist told them that they cannot have rice anymore. Mm. That's absurd. It is a part of their culture. So I was like, okay, so here's what a cup of rice looks like. And you're going to mix the white and brown rice together and lower the carbohydrate load. And they just felt so liberated. So it's yeah. really having the cultural humility to be able to, and I think that's where the race concordance comes in, is having that racial, cultural humility to say, okay, well, I understand that this is a part of your experience. And while we don't want to take that away from you, we want to adapt it in a way that you can keep parts of it while you're also taking care of your health. So there's some very tangible things that happen in those relationships. Absolutely. And I just want to highlight, I really appreciate you saying cultural humility. That's the term that uh -huh. I tend to prefer uh -huh. as well as, as opposed uh -huh. to cultural competence, this belief that we can somehow become competent in right. someone else's culture. Um, and and that, that's so important. And, and it leads me to, you know, kind of the, the discussions about what we can do about this, because while uh -huh. we know that um, having a provider who looks like you, who shares your cultural beliefs and, and who understands um, uh -huh. your culture, your background is more likely to be empathetic, is more likely to uh -huh. maybe see themselves in you or see you and them. Um, at the same time, we've already shared the statistics that there are very few physicians of color. And, and while there are lots of initiatives in the, in the works to improve the pipeline and you know diversify the healthcare workforce, that is certainly the long game. And so meanwhile, we have to think about how do we improve the care that communities of color receive from people who don't look like them, from people uh -huh. who don't share their background. So based on your personal, professional experience and expertise, how do you feel that healthcare providers, hospitals, health systems can begin to build trust specifically with communities and patients of color? Well, I think one of the critical things is um, is re-engineering re or rethinking how we deliver medical education. Um, so I will say that one of the things that gives me hope working in an academic medical center is a young generation of future physicians um, have so much more insight into all of these issues, how the social determinants of health impact patient outcomes, how they particularly impact the care of marginalized communities. So they're coming into medical school with, with this perspective yeah. because of what they've studied in college. Like they've lived through not just George Floyd, but all of the other um, atrocities that have happened in the last 10 or 15 years. So medical education now um, incorporates those elements of history, the history of medicine, how medicine has contributed to health inequities in minoritized communities, and then how do we combat those? So I think medical education is one that's key. The other is that the Office of Minority Health um, put out the class standards, the nationally, culturally, and linguistically appropriate standards um, at the, like sort of around 2000, and making sure that hospitals are actually incorporating that into their operations. So what is the diversity of the governance structure and leadership of the hospital? Um, so there's a whole piece um, set of standards around workforce diversity. Then there's a whole set of standards around communication. Um, is there um, access to interpretation services? We are not supposed to be asking 
the patient's child to translate the medical appointment for them. Um, not only is it inappropriate, but it's also a, a, against the law. So providing a qualified medical interpreter for patients who need that, having bilingual signage, you know, what are the most common languages in your service area? So like for us at Hopkins, it's Spanish, Russian, Arabic, Mandarin, and Korean. So we have all of our patient education materials available in those languages, but if they need other languages, we have a whole language services division that does that. Um, and then there's a whole, you know, there's a whole um, set of standards around data. So are you collecting race, ethnicity, and language data, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability data on your patients so you can actually stratify your quality, safety, and outcome measures and see where are the inequities and then develop interventions to address them. So that's kind of the end of the hospital. But I think most importantly, um, healthcare centers need to deliver care outside of their brick and mortar. If we're really going to reach those marginalized communities, we need to deliver care that way. And I feel like that's why we were able to make such an impact um, in Baltimore City with our minoritized and marginalized communities because we did mobile vaccine clinics across the city. So Johns Hopkins Health System did that. University of Maryland Medical System did that. Um, so we went to where people were. We were vaccinating in church basements and community centers and schools. Um, at one point... <laughs> There was a team in Hopkins that was driving a van around finding people, oh, I love <laughs> you that. know, um, and <laughs> so we need to think about um, because we know those are trusted community um, partners, then it's like, how do we support them so that we could do some of the preventive care delivery there? We could even recruit for clinical trials there. You can imagine people would be more likely to enroll and engage in a clinical trial if they could do their appointments at their community center instead of taking yes. three buses to come to the healthcare center for their testing. So I think we need to become much more creative um, about knocking down the walls and really delivering care outside of the brick and mortar to reach those communities. Phenomenal. I'm, I'm, I'm literally over here. I know you all on the podcast can't see, but see us, but like I'm bouncing <laughs> up and down in my chair. Because <laughs> Dr. Golden, you have just hit on all of the key elements of um, eliminating disparities or, you know, decreasing these disparity gaps and building trust, rebuilding mm -hmm. trust in communities of color. Um, as we wrap up, you know, I, we this is an immune deficiency foundation uh -huh. podcast. So, you know, they are not a hospital. They are not a uh -huh. health system. They are uh, a patient advocacy organization. And so what is your recommendation for organizations like IDF and other organizations whose purpose is really to educate, improve awareness, um, engage with the community, um, uh -huh. as well as bridge gaps between patients with these rare diseases and the healthcare community. And we know that within the primary immunodeficiency community, um, you know, there are minoritized patients, many of whom have not yet been identified, many of whom may not feel comfortable um, uh -huh. reaching out for care. Um, so do you have any recommendations or advice for, um, for those types of healthcare organizations or organizations like Immune Deficiency Foundation? Yeah, ab absolutely. So one of the things you said early when you were describing the work was the advocacy piece. So that's where I feel like the um, patient advocacy organizations and even the scientific organizations, um, you know, like the American Diabetes Association, American Heart Association, um, that's where they can have a voice. So, you know, we talked a bit about the social determinants of health, and we know that the conditions in which people live really account for 60% 
of what happens to them from a health standpoint. So it's important to be able to use your voice to um, advocate to your local legislature, local and federal legislature on policies that can improve the health outcomes for patients with immune deficiency disorders, for example. So if you know there's disparities in a particular group of individuals and that there are you know, economic or other structural factors that are contributing, then it's determining, okay, then what are the upcoming laws um, that or potential bills that are on the docket and the state where the organization is located, if it has branches or federally that we can support and provide written or oral testimony for to really help improve the outcomes for our patients. So I think that's one. And then the other piece of advocacy is teaching patients how to advocate for themselves, like giving them those tools that if the doctor is telling you something that you're not comfortable with and doesn't make sense, like you deserve a second opinion and it's okay to get one. Um, and making sure that if you're sensing that I'm not sure that this physician is fully um, taking things that I'm saying seriously, or I'm not really getting the answer I'm comfortable with, teaching patients how to advocate for themselves is an important role. Thank you for that. You know, you're speaking my language now. I, yes. The patient advocacy piece is what I do. And, yes. and I agree, you know, for, for all conditions, but certainly when we talk about rare diseases, that's just a, a greater opportunity for patients to be dismissed. Uh -huh. um, and so giving patients, as you stated, the tools to be able to really confidently engage in conversations, the way you stood up for yourself when, you know, uh -huh. you had, you went into the emergency room and you were about to be dismissed. We need to make uh -huh. sure that patients and their family members are just as comfortable and just as confident uh -huh. um, engaging in those types of conversations with healthcare providers. Well, Dr. Golden, this has been an amazing conversation. I just want to thank you again for your time, for your insight, uh, for your wisdom, and for sharing with our audience today. I want to leave it with you to see if you have any closing thoughts. Is there anything about medical mistrust uh, in communities of color that we didn't get to, anything that you want to make sure that the audience walks away with? I think the, the main message would be that um, as awful as COVID was, and about three years ago, we were all just entering what we was going to be a long haul, even though we may not have known it. There's a lot of lessons that we learned in that experience about how to rebuild trust, how to build bridges, um, how to educate marginalized communities. So we need to actually apply that to non-COVID related diseases and conditions now. Um, I think before 2020, we would have said, oh, it's just really too hard to educate in that way and go to communities. But now we know it's actually not as hard as we thought, and we can actually do that. So um, my favorite um, pandemic quote, it was anonymous, and someone sent it to me on a listserv in April of 2020, but it said, um, nothing should go back to normal. If mm -hmm. we just go back to normal, we will have lost the lesson may we rise up and do better. And that's what I've been trying to carry with me as we kind of emerge from the current. And even our whole organization is trying to think of, let's not just go back to the way things were, but like, let's take the lessons that we've learned and move into the future with them so we can achieve more equitable outcomes. I love that. There is no better way to end this episode. Thank you again, Dr. Golden. Thank all of you for listening. Uh, don't forget to continue to tune in. There will be future episodes of Bold Conversations as we continue to unpack um, the history of structural racism and bias and discrimination in medicine, and most importantly, provide a pathway for moving forward. 
So thank you again, Dr. Golden. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.